Ray Coob and Marcus Goldman here to remind you that summer vacation is all we ever needed. So we're taking a few weeks off from making new episodes. Bent News will continue, but we're going to spread out and enjoy some summer. Right, partner? Absolutely. We need to enjoy the sun, the water, the mountains, the air. And we get to read and do some research for some upcoming episodes also. That's right. The next stretch of Rock and Roll Highway. We're getting it ready here. And thanks for always being part of the imbalanced history of rock and roll. During the course of the imbalanced history of rock and roll, we have broken the history of heavy metal into smaller stages because you have to, because there's so much to talk about, so many bands, so many things happening, and all of the weird peripheral stuff that's tied to it. So we decided to break it into segments, and we are currently at the Iron Age. I am excited for this episode because we brought somebody in who really knows this era inside and out. His name is John Wiederhorn. He is a fantastic author, written five books, including one of my favorites of his, which is Raising Hell. And today we get to talk to John about the Iron Age. Ray and Marcus welcoming our guest, author John Wiederhorn. You're also a podcaster, right? Well, I haven't done a podcast in a while, but uh, yeah, I did a 12-part podcast for uh, for iHeart called uh, Backstage the Devil in Metal, and uh, it explored all the various tropes of the metal genre, with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, but also uh, uh, somewhat of an analysis of what happened in uh, each of the, the, the various sub areas you know the with with uh, drinking groupies and partying and uh the general debauchery right <laughs> yeah a lot of it was debauchery but then we also did specific biographies of judas priest focusing on rob halford uh when his new book came out really talking about how being in the closet uh, uh was a, a huge huge impediment for for his career and his life his lifestyle and drove him to alcoholism and it's a very, very honest book, and seeing that it's uh, it's Gay Pride Month, it's uh, it's a nice time to mention that. But that's a that's actually a great book. But yeah, so uh, I'm I'm working with uh, a buddy of mine, Ian McFarland, who's a, a film director, and we've got some podcast ideas that we're throwing around. But uh, yeah, staying busy in that world as well as the writing world. Can you share what books you might be writing or working on at this time? Yeah, we just landed a deal, actually, uh, for Marty Friedman from uh, Megadeth, uh, his uh, official bio autobiography. And uh, if you if you know his story, of course, he was with Megadeth for 10 years, um, played on a couple, well, some of their, their high, mo most highly regarded and best-selling albums, uh, specifically Rust in Peace and Countdown to Extinction. Uh, left after 10 years to go to Japan and, and play J-pop and uh, with no connections, no history in it. And it's what he did was incredible. He uh, turned himself into basically a Japanese, well, an American celebrity in Japan doing game shows and doing talk shows. He's an ambassador of culture to the government and writing for symphonies and uh, movies. 
Wait a minute. Our Marty Friedman? The guy? Our Marty Friedman? Holy cow. I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. He's just, he's an incredible guitarist. And uh, he still loves metal, but, you know, he had this obsession with Japan and he said, I'm just going to go and, you know, move there. And 30 years later or, or 20 years later, he's, uh, he's married to one of the, the lead violinists in the, you know, I think it's the uh, Tokyo Philharmonic. And uh, he's, he's, he's working as an ambassador and doing, doing everything he can name. It's amazing. <laughs> Marcus, this is what happens when we have smarter people than we are on the podcast. We learn stuff from the second we start talking. So I remember when Marty was in the band interviews and hanging out on tours and stuff, the, you know, the fun, crazy stuff and had no idea that all this had happened in his life. It's great. What a great way to start our visit with John Wiederhorn. Uh, you were talking about writing and stuff and you were talking about podcasting, but Let's remind people that you've written a few pretty sweet books on your own already. Uh, Louder Than Hell was your first book, The Definitive Oral History of Metal in 2013. Uh, Guitar World presents The Life and Genius of Kurt Cobain the next year. And this is the one I want to get into talking with you sometime, uh, maybe after I have a fresh reading of it. Ministry, The Lost Gospels, according to Al Jorgensen. I'm the man, the story of that guy from Anthrax, that guy, Scotty, and he's a funny guy and a great character to write about, I'm sure. And then My Riot, Agnostic Front, Grits, Guts, and Glory. And they are definitely a gritty band. I saw part of the documentary about them uh, not that long ago and still out there, still hanging it out there and still doing it all these years since your book came out, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh Roger and Vinny are, are inseparable. And uh, it's funny because they have such opposite personalities, but music brings them together and, and this, this band is their lifeline. Uh, it's really incredible. On our last episode about metal, we were talking about what we termed the Bronze Age, and that's when the 70s are turning into the 80s, uh, Maiden's becoming the Maiden that we know, just as the number of the Beast is coming out. All these things are happening. Uh, the new wave of British heavy metal has hit the beach, right? The wave is crested, and there's all these things that are happening as uh, another round of fresh ideas start to get infused into the music that we put under the banner of metal. And that's one of the things we want to talk about. What came next in metal in the 80s and beyond? Well, it was a crucial period. I mean, aside from the fact that you had these great bands coming out of... Uh, mostly the UK, um, although Judas Priest had already been playing the style of metal, I think, that really inspired the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, under the original tag of uh, NWOBHM. There, you know, there, there was Saxon, there was Tigers of Pantang, there was Raven, there were all these groups that were ramping up what they'd heard from from Budgie and Priest and, and uh, these earlier bands and Maiden, of course, led the pack. They they kind of really took the musical uh, lead and uh, the creative lead, and and I think uh, really you know, turned into a phenomenon. What was going on in the U.S. at that time? I know we had the beginning of thrash metal, but do Quiet Riot and Van Halen play into the picture as far as bringing metal and hard rock? from the 70s into the 80s, do Quiet Riot and Van Halen play a part in this? 
I think they're important. I don't know if they're metal, but I think also metal can be whatever you make of it. Um, they wouldn't identify themselves in metal bands, nor would ACDC, nor would Motorhead. But what you had was these groups that were inspired by loud music and that were looking again to England. In this case, it was the glam movement that came out. You, you know, you had the Sweet, you had Slade, um, you had T-Rex, even some Bowie with this dramatic uh, presentation and this is fairly loud music, although Bowie, you know, went through all kinds of uh, temperaments musically, but um, especially the Sweet, they're practically a you know a, a, a motley crew forerunner. They're like totally a a glammy metal band, um, although they were glam rock at the time. And I think that took a lot of influence, uh, or, or the American bands, especially the the Sunset Strip, took a lot of influence from all that stuff. Of course, Van Halen was a huge, huge inspiration on the, the Pantera Brothers. Both Dime and Vinny were, were raised on, on Van Halen and loved it to death, as did an awful lot of Americans at the time who were discovering metal or, or, or starting to bring metal to the next the next level. It was like when they were kids, they were listening to Kiss and then Van Halen, and you're tr starting to kind of progress. Priest, maybe, what can be heavier than this? Maiden. Then there were these guys who were uh, listening to a little bit more of the British side of the new wave of British heavy metal. Uh, of course, Lars Ulrich was a key component of that, and uh, and Dave Mustaine too, because I guess the two were hanging out a lot and introducing each other to new to new music, and Lars got all the stuff from Europe. That's really where Metallica's roots kind of came from. You know, you take the punk side with the Misfits, and you br bridge it with the, the, the kind of judas priest raven is that grindy edge that they adopted as their uh, their main thrust forward you know it's an amalgam it really is there are different bands that give you different parts of the sonic combinations that you get if you put a band together you never would have had it without motorhead though they are the foundation of so much all the different techniques and things that people do on records is one thing but that, that rumble, that rumble, that growl, it all came from Motorhead. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you take a lot of the thrash bands and they take the speed and the grumble of Motorhead, fine tune it into this razor sharp finesse of, of Priest and Iron Maiden. And I mean, like Anthrax were giant Iron Maiden fans. Like that was absolutely Scott Ian's favorite band at the time. Um, and you get a much more musically honed and maybe even musically advanced sound that bordered sometimes on progressive rock. Not the first Metallica record, but the second and third definitely went into this, these progressive realms all still being extremely heavy. Of course, Megadeth had a, a really progressive approach to, you know, with this technical guitar metal. And you got a lot of shredders out of that, which was, which was pretty cool. Um, great players, great, heavy, aggressive music. And I think a lot of it kind of stemmed from the times, you know? We were living in a lot of uh, uh, turmoil uh, politically, you know, a lot of friction in the air. Kids didn't know if they were gonna ever grow up to be as successful as their parents, if their parents even were successful. A lot of them didn't come from successful families and wanted a way out. The struggle was real, man. Yeah, the struggle was real, absolutely. And I think that drives a lot of great music, you know, be it hardcore punk or be it death metal. I think a lot of it can come from this, this need to escape, this catharsis.
I've known Scott and the boys in Anthrax for a long time, but what do you think was the combination of elements that brought them all together musically, the things that turned them on that turned into Anthrax? Because they're all different players within the same band, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, what you had was uh, the core of it, which, you know, was uh, Scott Ian and Charlie Benante. And uh, they... Uh, you know, met over this mutual love for for some of this uh, new wave of British heavy metal stuff, along with ACDC and, um, you know, just some some great melodic rock and as hardcore as well. And you can't forget that Um, they were one of the first groups that really created a uh, crossover splinter band, which was, you know, Stormtroopers of Death, S.O.D., um, who can't be ignored. I mean, I think for metal kids, they introduced a lot of metal kids to DRI and Corrosion Conformity. And and brought in a lot of the thrash bands that, that people grew to love over time. They just didn't know them yet, you know? Yeah, but Scott told me a great story when they were auditioning Charlie. Um, they were really into Motorhead. It had some drummers who didn't, you know, quite fit what they were trying to do. They was like, can you play double bass drum? And Charlie's like, yeah, I can play double bass drum. And so he starts going, better, 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 better. And then uh, they said, uh, I think it was Scott who said, well, dude, do you know Fast as a Shark by Accept? And uh, Charlie smiled and immediately went into that crazy beat, which is really almost thrash metal before thrash was was around. Um, and they broke into it and it was like, yeah, this is this is going to work. And then when they really broke was, was when they brought a vocalist in who had nothing to do with thrash metal and didn't know who Motorhead was. Uh, this guy, you know, Joey Belladonna, of course, had grown up on Deep Purple and uh, classic rock. And he was a real belter, a real singer. And the fact that they were able to make that work, I think was really cool because it showed that there could be this marriage between melodic vocals and really, really aggressive riffy guitars. Now, did you get to see Anthrax in the early days before they blew up? Um, I didn't see them before Joey. Uh, I guess I caught him right before Among the Living came out. I knew there was something special about them because I I was already way into SOD, spreading the disease had a flavor to it that was just explosive. And you could feel it was like they were riding this album up to the point where they could create something just, just uh, you know, amazing, like Among the Living, at the same time as you had Metallica going from uh, Ride the Lightning to Master of Puppets, and uh, even Slayer were on the verge of some really incredible stuff. All these bands were evolving you know they came in 
with these fresh ideas and these novel concepts, but it was raw. And plus, the vibe was right. It, it felt like there was something seriously happening and the scene was strong and everyone was having a good time. And there was a lot of partying and a lot of craziness. They say proximity often breeds interaction, right? Do you think the fact that it was all around them led Scott and the guys in Anthrax to be amongst the first bands to infuse hip hop into their music and kind of like yeah. take their stuff and wrap it around some hip hop ideas before they were doing it? It really wasn't too widespread. Right, right. Well, you'd had Run DMC collaborating with um, uh, Aerosmith, of course. So you had a little bit of that and Run DMC were using heavy guitar riffs as samples in their music and and that evolved to the point where you know Public Enemy took it to the next level. Scott was hanging out in the New York scene and uh, he he was definitely into rap. He was he was a big fan of uh, Public Enemy, friends with Chuck D and um, you know it was uh, sort of a natural evolution. When uh, he was was uh, hanging out with some of those guys, you know, they they started messing around, and then they did uh, uh, "I'm the Man" as yeah. a uh, kind of hip hop spoofy kind of thing. I was in metal radio then, and we got that, and I was already playing Anthrax, and I got I, I must. I mean, this is in the day when you could get away with playing. I, I just must have played it every week for like eight weeks straight because it was so fucking good. It is heavy because it goes from this ridiculous, you know, BC Boys ripoff rap to right. like this driving like thrash metal metal midsection. <laughs> and it was funny as hell. There's this, you know, maybe not PC, but there's a guy kind of doing doing this. I'm the man. I'm so bad. I should be in detention. You know, this impression of a fucking of an awesome, indie. right? <laughs> it was just really funny and entertaining. And that's the thing about Anthrax is for all of the aggression in their music. You could tell they had a just, you know, they loved it. They had a sense of humor. And uh, even if their lyrics were really scathing at times, you could tell they were super serious about their music, but nothing else. Off stage, they were clowns. They were wearing Bermuda shorts on stage even, you know. I mean, they weren't dressing the part or trying to impress by looking, you know, vicious. Like Slayer were vicious. They didn't smile. It was, Slayer were hardcore. It was tough to... Tough to get a rise out of those guys. Offstage, pussycats. But, um, oh, one of the most brutal bands. When they get out there, nothing else matters. That's our space. Don't you come in our space. During the early days of the Bronze Age, when the new wave of British heavy metal was uh, blowing up and bands like Anthrax and Metallica and Megadeth and 
those were happening in the U.S. Who were some of the smaller bands that never made it but were doing well in the scene at that time? Like they had good success in the scene but never made it past their scenes. Well, I think you got to go to the Germans and uh, and and give them props. There were uh, three German bands that were really critical around the time that all of this was happening, and that was uh, Sodom, Creator, and Destruction. And they were maybe a little bit heavier than Metallica, but less musically accomplished. Um, awful lot of drive and an awful lot of energy. I'd put them more in the Slayer camp, um, except I think Jeff Hanneman wrote phenomenal tunes and he didn't even know that he was inventing this whole new way of 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 uh playing thrash metal with these chromatic arrangements but you know uh, these these three bands were really influential to anyone in america who went beyond the the commercial level of of thrash you know you got the big four but it's really they're really the big six or the big seven because testament were a big force in the san francisco scene Exodus were founders of thrash along with uh, with Metallica. Kirk Hammett, of course, started out in Exodus. And Gary Holt played with Slayer in later years and, and remains, you know, a real uh, torchbearer for that kind of music. So, you know, there were there were bands, uh, Dark Angel, um, uh, they, they were in L.A. And Gene Hoagland was in that band and he later played in Strapping Young Lad. And he was in Testament, he was in other groups. And, and uh, the Death Angel, who were a bunch of young guys that followed in Metallica's footsteps and kind of were like their little brothers, although they, I mean, they, they hung out a lot. And there was a really strong scene building. I, I, and I think there that there was uh, a lot of crossover between the hardcore bands that I sort of mentioned before that suddenly became a lot more metallic because, you know, they, they realized that the speed and aggression could go with these really um choppy riffs and this this really kind of cool um musical progression uh so that's how corrosion of conformity turned from a complete hardcore band into more of a thrash band and then eventually like a doom doomy southern kind of kind of metal band who are still awesome i think anybody who had an open mind could really do interesting things with the different styles that were around I mean, Possessed was a band from uh, uh, California, San Francisco. Their guitarist, Larry Lalonde, you know, went up to, to join uh, uh, Primus with Les Claypool, right. who also started out playing thrash. So, you know, these guys discovered other places to go besides the uh, confines of, of whatever they were doing, or they stayed in the confines of what they're doing and made it better. And I think it was just a really exciting time for uh for music and and um and when when you had that open-mindedness to explore other styles and merge them with what you were doing you were you were taking chains off i think that uh, all different forms of music not just rock you know, we talked about punk rock and all the ways that it changed and, and moved into the, the around through the 70s into the 80s the new wave and the next wave and all the different things, the new romantics. Metal kind of went through a lot of the same things moving into the 80s. There are a lot of different ideas being thrown out there, like you were saying, you know, uh, we talked about the, the glam metal, you know, that was prevalent on the strip. 
in the hip-hop part the so-called new metal it's just a different idea being expressed they tried everybody tries to stick everybody into a box john right it's it's terrible thing that we do but things like black metal and grindcore death metal and thrash all taking on their own lives simultaneously parallel there through the 80s along with all the different forms of alternative music etc everything kind of moving and diversifying and yet there's bands that would break through and transcend it all and become huge and often they could help to lead a charge whether it was for uh, the glam metal bands right when motley Crue starts breaking It's just an interesting time to be going forward as a musician who likes it loud. You can kind of pick from a menu and go into that area if you so choose, I think. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. The hybridization became much more common and accepted. Earlier on, when you had these punks evolving from a scene and these metal kids evolving from a scene, they were like different gangs. You know, these guys would maybe meet at a concert uh a ramones show or misfit show and if you were a long hair you might get the shit kicked out of you by a uh a skinhead or at least get some really nasty looks and you wouldn't go too close you know it's a shame too because they were kind of like brothers who uh were from different marriages or something and and yeah, brothers from different mothers as we used to call brothers them, right? from different mothers yeah back with more with john wiederhorn in just a little bit well, we're into the active part of the year, and that means more walking with golf and just doing walks for me. And already my bold foot socks have come into play. The new ones I just got in the French Quarter in New Orleans on a vacation, Marcus, where I walked over 25 miles over the course of five days. That's awesome. And you didn't have stinky, muggy New Orleans sweaty feet, did you? No, my feet were dry. In fact, I couldn't feel them at all. It was wonderful. Hey, man, I've been wearing the socks quite a bit as well. The weather's getting nicer, and I am spending more time on my bike. I'm spending more time walking with my wife and my son. And a lot of times, I'm wearing my boldfoot socks. And when I'm doing longer rides, the boldfoot socks do wonders in wicking the sweat off my feet so they're not as stinky after a ride and not as mushy, and I like that. Swampy feet, bad. Boldfoot, good. <laughs> Check them out at boldfoot.com. Always a neat pair of socks. Anything you can want, any size, any style, you can find them at boldfoot.com. And don't forget, they give back to veterans charities for every pair they sell. Boldfoot socks are American grown, American sewn. They're your feet. Be bold. Summertime is here, and it's time to get in and spend some time with your friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. 
they're right there just off York Road on Montgomery Avenue. And what goes on in the summertime, Mark, is you know you've been there when the doors are up and uh, the windows are open. Yeah, you get a nice little breeze running through the bar and you get all these tasty beers to try. And being that it's summertime, the summer beers are out. And don't forget the Salty Vets Barbecue. They've got cocktails. That's right. Craft cocktails from Pennsylvania distillers. Wine, you need it. You want some cider? They got that. Take a growler home or a gift certificate for a friend who loves Crooked Eye. But stop by anytime. You can find their calendar on their Facebook page. There's always something going on. Of course, the Crooked Eye band's there the second Saturday of every month. Come out and have a brew and make a new friend because that's part of what goes on when you visit Crooked Eye Brewery. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Back from the break and ready to roll on on the imbalanced history of rock and roll with John Wiederhorn. You know, they eventually did see some some commonalities, but they're in the early days of uh, the CBGB's uh, uh, Sunday matinees. You'd have uh, bands like Prong playing and, you know, they were they were, they were mixing punk and metal and, and uh, Tommy Victor, of course, worked there and was doing the soundboard and when i i guess uh metallica was still in new york working on kill em all mostly it, it was kirk used to go see shows at cbgb's and there was a point where these kids looked at them it must have been after kill em all because they metallica already had a reputation maybe they came back after they did did ride the lightning but they were in they were in town they were in a show and all these guys were like rock stars get the fuck out of here and scott said that you know they just suddenly didn't feel safe and it it was really unfair because you know this was a place they wanted to be and they felt they belonged but it just you know wasn't a good place the vibe wasn't good and and there was this attitude that uh, if you weren't underground and poor 
then you shouldn't be in our uh, in our scene. Did that lead to the metal gang finding their own clubs and places? Do you think like, okay, you don't want us to hang here. We'll find our own place four blocks from here. I don't know. I'm just asking in general. I mean, I don't know. I was in the, I was on the East Coast, so I didn't really see that. Um, I saw clubs that were, uh, you know, 250 to 500 seaters suddenly realizing that they could book metal bands and get get good showings. So they did it and they do it whether it was a punk band or a metal band. You know, these promoters were in it to make some money. Maybe in L.A. it happened more or San Francisco because you had Ruthie's, which became, you know, a real thrash uh, iconic place. And 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 yeah, I guess because Lemoore's in in uh, uh, Brooklyn was definitely catering towards the metal crowd. The responsibilities were when, when people trash places. And so that used to be a big thing. Like there weren't lawsuits back then like there are now. And it was a danger when you were in the pit. And even though there was a code of conduct where you're really supposed to pick someone up if they fall down. And I mean, when people are swinging their arms around and they've got, you know, nails sticking out of wristbands, you're, you're in for you know, a little bit of a risk. Um, but people would get knocked over and bloodied and they wouldn't sue the club, you know, because it was just unheard of. It's like this is the place where, where we belong and, and where we unite. Marcus, tell them what happened to you at a Bad Brain show. It wasn't uh, HR. I can't. I think it was Israel Joseph toured with the band, and it was the time that Rise came out, and he did a stage dive, and my face happened to be where his boots landed, and I broke my nose, and I was so pissed that I couldn't be in the pit for Living Color and had to watch the show from the balcony. Splat happens, dude. I was bummed, and then I had to do a midnight shift at a radio station I was working at, which was. Michael Bolton, Amy Grant, soft rock. What? Ha, That's ha, great. You didn't call a lawyer, though. You were like, it was, it was no. a war, a war wound. It's my choice, man. It was my choice to be in the pit. I took the chance, and it was my responsibility. And my face happened to be where his uh, boots were, and I didn't react quick enough, and that was my fault. Totally. I got a big, big bag of ice from the. Uh, people at the soda machine and i went back up to the balcony to watch the show there was no way i was gonna miss it broken nose please <laughs> i took a boot to the forehead in the pit at an anthrax show and uh oh. yeah that was probably one of the last pits i went in <laughs> but i didn't blame it on anybody <laughs> but myself i was like okay i'm too stupid to you know or or I, if i keep doing this i'm gonna totally get destroyed because i'm not a huge guy and the key was to stay on the edge of the insanity just beyond chaos right. if you could yeah <laughs> and you get what do you do you kind of got to go with it and go through it people get pushed in yeah that's true but i saw that a lot previously when you were talking about cbgb's and the metal and the punk crossover there's another band from that time that played a big part in that and that was the plasmatics as they did a metal punk crossover did you get to see them in the early days of their shows i never did and i i i always loved the covers of their albums because of course wendy o williams is hanging in there with you know sitting there with her tits hanging out ah, and got, ah, ah. um there's elastic tape on it i don't know if i can say that word but probably probably it's okay right <laughs> You can say any fucking word you want to say on this fucking podcast. All right. Fucking tits. So uh, oh, yeah. fucking tits. You can't say fucking tits. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I got a plasmatics record and it's funny because I was like, huh, I'm in the metal. I should like this. But I didn't feel there were really songs there. You know, I felt there was attitude and there were and then they did some weird record called Maggots, and it was more metal, and I liked it. I thought, well, this is this is definitely going in the right direction. But I never got a chance to see them. And it was only later that I found out about the insanity that went on on stage with uh, blowing up cars and and chains, chainsawing guitars, uh, guitars and, and, and just crazy ass, you know. Yeah, smashing TVs with the big sledgehammer while covered in whipped cream. I mean, she did stuff. She made people uncomfortable. The band made people uncomfortable with their music. And there was a shock value. And that discomfort might have been why people maybe we're a little apprehensive with them it was her birthday the other day yeah and i saw of course the picture of her with the guitar under her knee the chainsaw halfway through it, it never will change that's the lasting imagery that and the uh the cover of her what is it the the priestess metal priestess yeah mm -hmm. metal priestess where she's standing there like you know side style thrusting the boys up into the air covered in nothing but electrical tape I mean, she was into bold imagery in the same way that a lot of metal bands are, if you think about it. But for a woman to do that at that oh. point, I mean, how gutsy. Yeah. That's that's pretty incredible. You know, Joan Jett was was a real pioneer and Lita Ford, but they weren't extreme the way that uh, you know, the way that Wendy O. Williams was. True. So even if you don't love the music, I think you gotta give her props for for being who she was and doing what she did. Deborah Harry said that Wendy O. Williams was blowing up cars and smashing TVs on stage before with her tits out before anybody was doing it. And now everybody has their tits out. You know, she really pushed the envelope. Well, you know, it's 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 like you come to a point where, like Jane's Addiction says, nothing's shocking. Once you've seen, you know, the 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 extremes of the genre, for anybody who is lucky or unlucky enough to have seen Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkies. It's like, is that music? Is that something I want to experience? But once you see someone take a crap on stage, throw it at the audience and, uh, you know, start beating on people out there, uh, you know, banging his dick against whoever's within proximity and swinging punches. It's hard to see something more extreme than that. But oh my God. But where does where do you define, you know, what's enjoyable or what's music? And what's fucking being a criminal and a, you know, screw up. It's a thin line. It's all I'm going to say. And people with that type of kink or fetish are going to be totally into it. And that type of music is like Gigi Allen is going to draw people with that sort of kink and enjoyment and people who aren't shocked by it. And then you have the Jenna Torturers who actually had a certain level of musical talent uh, taking S&M into a more mainstream uh, place. Jen offered to pierce me in the most intimate of places one night. She was playing the Chestnut Cabaret. Jenna Tortures were there. I went to MC the show and she says, look, I've talked about it with you on the air. Come on back. Let me hook you up. I was like, no way am I getting penis pierced. Prince, Prince Albert? Isn't it Prince Albert? Prince yeah. Albert. Yeah, it's the Prince <laughs> Albert. I'm not getting the Prince Albert backstage at the Chestnut Cabaret. I could tell right. you. Yeah. What an honor, though. <laughs> I know it really kind of was, and I hate to turn her down, but I wasn't going to say, well, can you pierce my ear? Was right, exactly. 
But uh, do you want to be peeing sideways for the rest of your life? Probably not. Well, when you get to a certain age, it becomes a challenge anyway. I'll just give you that advance warning, Mr. Wiederhorn. Hey, thanks for the heads <laughs> up, Ray. John Wiederhorn <laughs> is our guest here on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. Yes, we're, anything can and does get said, John. You figured that part out early <laughs> on, I think. It's so good to have you here just talking about all things metal as we're talking about the next phase of metal. 80s is probably the most vital as far as a business perspective, the biggest and also the craziest of anything that's going on out there. And that includes all the shit that went on in the 70s with the rock bands, you know, like the Eagles or even Led Zeppelin, right? If you want to talk about legendary shit that happened. And the Stones. And the Stones. But there's a whole different level on a lot of different levels. It's going on with bands who are doing all different kind of sounds, all heavy, all pissing off the PMRC and all the conservatives. And that was part of the fun of it as well, for me at least. I don't know about for I think the commerce and the decadence go hand in hand, you know, because when you see that a Motley Crue can sell millions of albums and play to sold out arenas, the labels are going to give them whatever the fuck they want. So the or anybody who's around them, these guys are getting, you know, the drugs that they didn't used to be able to afford are suddenly being handed to them. And they weren't ones to turn anything down. And the chicks were everywhere. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was nothing wrong as long as someone had a card that said they were 18 years old. <laughs> or if no one found out they were not, um, the sky was the limit. Well, at least that's in theory, John. That's the theory that they, that was it. You know, there other guys had other, uh, li, li, you know, uh, lines of demarcation that weren't quite as high as... I need to see. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, you know, I mean, do, doing Louder Than Hell was such a blast because uh, we did it. Uh, my my co-writer, Catherine, and I worked on it. It came out 10 years ago, so we started about 14 years ago. And that was before the Me Too movement and before things became very, you know, before cancel culture and things were PC. And I'm, I'm all, you know, I'm totally in favor of things being uh, uh, even keeled and even politically correct. And, and I think women deserve all the credit in the world because they're smarter than men. And, uh, you know, a lot of them have uh, um, been through some horrible, horrible things that they were should never have been exposed to. Having said that, some of them were willing participants in a game of debauchery that they weren't forced into, you know. Um, That's right. And everyone just went batshit. And uh, then when we did this book, people were willing to talk about it. You know, not when there were illegalities. Well, that's the thing. You were doing that book at a time when oral histories were just really starting to be a thing. And to get all those people to be telling their stories. And then you and Catherine sitting down and sorting them all out and lining them up in, in a cohesive fashion, of, you know, to tell the story. That's really what makes stuff like that go. And so you were hearing some really good stuff, maybe even some things that couldn't be put in the book, John? <laughs> oh, we put a lot in the book. Yeah, there were a couple of things that, that we felt uh, uh, kind of went beyond the fringe of what we were comfortable with. 
anything that involved something that was non-consensual, uh, we left out. Not that there were a ton of people, you know, fortunately, most people are smart enough not to talk about something that was non-consensual. Um, but, you know, when it came to handing out what they called pussy passes before shows, uh, there were these dudes who would go to the front rows of all these places. And I, I think it was I think it was Phil Collin. So, yeah, Phil told me that at the time, uh, you know, they had these uh, and it's in the book, but they had these these little laminates that they would hand out to the girls, depending on what they were willing to do. And uh, they had one that had a, a little picture of an eye and then a little picture of a bird and the bird was a swallow. And then there was a, uh, a sailor. And oh, what cute little images. No, it stood for I swallow semen. Oh, I guess some dude they hired is like, okay, you got to go around and ask these girls what they're willing to do and hand them the appropriate backstage passes so that when the guys see them in the uh, green room or whatever, they know where they stand. Oh, my, oh, my. The things we'll learn when we have John Wiederhorn on the imbalance history of rock and roll. I didn't know about that. It's like color coding. You know? <laughs> um, then there's all these stories of, girls under the um, scaffolding or, or the stage uh, servicing dudes during drum solos. And they, I never got that confirmed by Def Leppard. They never said that had uh, had happened. Maybe it was GNR or Motley Crue. It, it seems like something that could probably did happen, but we never got uh, that. That may just be a, an urban myth. Uh, a few urban myths mixed in is not surprising. After metal started making a lot of noise is when the labels and the suits started jumping in because metal really was DIY right in California, in the LA scene, those guys got really good at stapling flyers to poles and getting them into the right plate, you know, doing all of that and selling cassettes out of cars, car trunks. So these were the types of things that they were doing at first to really get the word out. But at the same time, to get a gig, they had to pay to play. They had to pay the venue to let them be on the uh, on the bill. You know, that same sort of theory many years later went into OzFest. Labels had to pay a considerable amount to get their bands onto, I think it was a second stage. Money has always dominated in the music industry and a lot of these bands that were coked out of their minds or were you know indulging in all of this debauchery were encouraged to do so by their management because their managers were robbing them blind it definitely goes for black sabbath i, I was talking to uh, derek shulman who uh was in gentle giant on the same label as as black sabbath and was good friends with ozzy and uh, and and tony and he told me that there was a point after General Giant realized they were getting screwed on their contracts because they were very young when they signed them and they just wanted to play. And then they started looking at their, the fine lines of their contracts or realizing the money wasn't coming in. And uh, they went to uh, their management and was like, what's going on here? Why, you know, they were able to nip it in the bud and, and realize, you know, or, or they, they, were, they were compensated for, for the mistakes that had been made. But, um, at the same time, Sabbath signed contracts saying that their management owned everything, their houses, their recordings. Ozzy didn't even own his own house, their cars. These were, you know, for them to use, but the ultimate ownership of said items belonged to uh, Don Arden and company. And, you know, so it was 
wherever there's money, there's corruption. And and uh, back then, it was you know really serious stuff because these guys, the, the 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 management were like thugs. You know, they're like mafia. Wow. We've seen several stories of it in our podcast journey here on the Imbalance History John. We really have. So. But then when the band started getting to the point where they were seeing money, because they all signed shitty contracts to start with, and, and, and it was a shame, but you can't deny a group that's selling two million albums at a certain point. They're, you know, they renegotiate their contracts, their royalties are kicking right. in, and they are, you know, a lot in the 80s, those bands made a, a shit ton of money. They were young, man. They they were none of them. Well, some went to college, but most of them were forming bands right out of high school if they finished high school. So they had years to get good and uh, to hone their craft. And man, if I was twenty one years old and uh, being handed the king the the the, the keys to the uh, you know uh, castle of sin, I'm not sure I'd turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> be hard pressed i think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who would uh, give that up at 21 or 22 or or say no right oh right. john uh we're gonna let you run because i'm sure you have other things to do with your day and more books to write uh five so far uh five yeah five five published and uh some that are they're in the negotiation stages although six if you had the clown's book from uh slipknot although he really it was a photo book, and I just did the, uh, the, the you know, captioning for his uh, his photos. Yeah, but still, that must have been fun. He was great. He's a trip, crazy as fuck, but <laughs> but I love him. He's really smart, and he's really, um, you know, I don't uh, cr- crazy, not as in you know mentally in a, in insane, but eccentric and you know, yeah. <laughs> spontaneous as hell. Yeah. Um, really, really fun guy to to hang with. I saw him come out to the soundboard at a Slipknot show and Mark Abrahamson was holding a beer and he just came out and walked up to him and blasted it out of his hand and Mark started laughing and Mark's like, every time he sees me with the beer in his hand, he does that. It's been going on for years. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, they had a good relationship. But in the early days of the Slipknot, you know, that was also in that era of just complete insanity. The band didn't have their I mean they they had their game together musically but they were it's amazing and nine guys could could keep their shit together as long as as they did back in, in in those days when they had management that was pitting different members against one another you know then of course they went with Corey Brennan in their later I guess by their third album maybe it was their second album but he uh put a lot of pieces in place and massaged a lot of egos in a good way not in a because before they were being pitted against one another and it was ugly i worked with Corey right before he went to work with them and i could see where he would be good for them and that obviously they are good for him because he's a guy who likes to help musicians achieve what they're looking to do and that's kind of what we were looking to do when we were in the same company but um, I'm glad to hear that that's all worked out. You know, sometime we should do an episode about the knot and have you back to talk more about all that craziness. Cause I know you love them too. Yeah, man. I, I would have really loved to have, uh, done clowns book. Corey Brennan once asked me if I was interested in doing a biography of the knot with a chapter on every band member. This is before Paul Gray and, uh, died in Joey without of the band. So this was a long time ago. 
And that would have been a blast. That would have been crazy. But uh, one of the funnest stories I did was for uh, Revolver, and I spent all day with the Knot at one of their, uh, it wasn't a Knot Fest, but uh, it was a big show at a major arena. And I spent about an hour talking with one band after member after member after member after member, and we turned it into this huge uh, oral history. It was no holds barred. You know, they they were talking about all the insanity and all of the uh, uh, destruction, and it. But a lot of it goes hand in hand with the extremity of the music. It's almost like I, I don't condone criminality, destruction, or excessively dangerous drug use. But when you've got a completely unstable, unhinged band, and that's how they portray themselves, it's almost disappointing if you find out that after shows, you know, they go home to their families and have like a nice dinner and then be uh, go to right. bed. By Seven puts on a smoking jacket, you know, lights up the cigar and walks out onto the veranda. It's like so Alice it really Cooper can get away world. with that. That's fine. But, but he had to go through hell to get there. <laughs> hey, John, do you want to uh, share your website information, your social media handles, so people can follow you on social media and check out your books and some of the other things that you've done over your lengthy career in music? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can read uh, a lot of my articles that have been posted through Authory on my website, and that's uh, www.johnweederhorn.com, and it's uh, J O N. W-I-E-D-E-R-H-O-R-N. I challenge you to spell it right. <laughs> None of my, uh, uh, you know, the first magazines I wrote for ever did. Um, but, but yeah, um, I've got links to all my podcasts there, uh, the episodes and uh, a lot of my articles and, and links to the books you can buy. And, um, it's a good overall view. And then uh, I'm louder than hell um, at Twitter. That's my handle for Twitter. Um, Facebook is just John Wiederhorn. So um, those are the main social media outlets that uh, that I'm using. I'll be sure to post your website link right in the episode so people can find it really easily. There's also a Louder Than Hell uh, Facebook page, which is still active, that we don't post on it as much as we should. Excellent. Good to know. Thank you so much for your time, John. Oh, man. Thanks for coming on. It was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. It was a blast. Something tells me that we haven't finished with the Iron Age just yet. Such an amazing conversation. Thanks to John Wiederhorn for being our guest. But I think that there may be more exploring that's necessary before we wrap it up and move on to the next phase of heavy metal here on the podcast, Marcus. I agree. I think we have to discuss the later Iron Age because that's when some of the transition happened and that's when some of the offshoots of the Iron Age, or when the Iron Age started to splinter, I should say. So, And when some of the four bands that start to create the bridge, which we've talked about, start to come into play as well. So it'll be another step in the progression of the metal music that we love so much here on the podcast. Hey, thanks to Boldfoot Socks at boldfoot.com. Uh, American grown, American sewn. Get a good pair of great socks at boldfoot.com. Also, our podcast sponsored by the good friends at Crook and I Brewery in the heart of Hapro. Great stuff going on in the summertime there. Get into the heart of Hapro at York Road in Montgomery. You'll see and hear the noise if you slide on by there. Wow, what a great episode. Great to share it with you, my friend. 
Yeah, this was fantastic. Our conversation with John Wiederhorn, as always, was a blast. And if you have any questions, comments, or want to uh, throw anything into the conversation, please feel free to email us, imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media under the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. A production of Dark Doc Media on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Till the next time we crack the mics and talk about whatever it is that's going on. I'm Ray Koob. I'm Marcus Goldman. And this is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.